Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. After 15 years of working as a fundraiser, Jessica Rose used her Master's in Social Innovation dissertation to highlight the horrifying prevalence of sexual harassment in the fundraising world. Jessica is now a part-time PhD student at the University of Cambridge and also the Head of Philanthropy and Development for the Spanish National Cancer Institute in Madrid. Jessica's research dissertation was entitled Why Fundraisers Tolerate Sexual Harassment from Donors. I asked her what she learned from this. I think what I hadn't realised was quite how much of a problem it really is. So for my research, I interviewed fundraisers and I interviewed managers of fundraisers to find out how they dealt with sexual harassment in the course of their work. And I reached out to fundraisers and I didn't check with them beforehand if they had experienced sexual harassment or not. And without exception, every single fundraiser that I interviewed, and I interviewed 24, had experienced sexual harassment multiple times across their career. So it's a real issue. It happens all the time. Now, I specifically, for my research, was focusing on sexual harassment as opposed to sexual assault. Now, sexual assault from donors occurs as well, but just to be clear, I was specifically talking to people about harassment, which I would class as still something unwanted and unpleasant and, frankly, inappropriate in a work setting. Before we talk about the findings, this might sound like a rather daft question to be asking you, but what is it about the dynamic of donor and fundraiser that enables such an act to occur? It's not a daft question at all. It's a really relevant question because, I mean, sexual harassment occurs in the workplace all the time. I think we all know that. And there's been literature and reams of articles written about that for a long time. The thing about the charitable sector is that the relationship between the fundraiser and the donor is slightly unusual in that fundraisers are required to cultivate close professional relationships with donors. They're often older men with high net worth. Fundraisers are often women and the donors have a higher social status than the fundraisers. So there is a power imbalance between the donor and the fundraiser pretty much always because the fundraiser is asking for something and the donor is giving something essentially. And on top of that, this is coupled with what I called misconstrued intimacy. So the nature of fundraising is that you get to, and just to be clear, in the context of my research, I was talking to major gift fundraisers. So in many big organisations, you're talking a million pounds plus. So we're talking about people with really high net worth individuals and fundraisers that are working possibly for up to two years on one gift. So you're talking about a fairly long-term relationship here between the fundraiser and the donor. It's not just a short transaction. As a fundraiser, what you do is you get to know the donor, you ask them lots of questions about their passions and their interests and their desires and what kind of impact they want to have on the world. And you're often doing it in a setting which could be, I mean, sometimes, to be honest, it's a little bit like a date. So you're meeting somewhere for a drink or for a meal or in an event where there might be 
it's it's not like you're going to their office much of the time and having more like a work meeting. So that's why I talk about sometimes there can be misconstrued intimacy because the donor is being wooed in a way by the fundraiser and not necessarily deliberately, but often I think that's how it feels to them. So the power imbalance between the donor and the fundraiser coupled with this misconstrued intimacy frequently leads to donor perpetrated sexual harassment. And one of the things that I found in the research was that donors exert a powerful symbolic influence over fundraisers and their organisations, even though they don't sit within the organisational hierarchy. So many charitable organisations, probably most all organisations, have policies in place to safeguard against sexual harassment, but they presume that the sexual harassment will occur inside the organisation. So between colleagues or from a subordinate or from a, a manager, for instance, organisations were not prepared to deal with sexual harassment from an external agent, so someone outside of the hierarchy. And not only that, donors are not only external agents, they're very powerful we want to keep them happy, we want the gift, and we don't want to do anything to jeopardise the gift. And in particular, what I was looking at is why fundraisers tolerate sexual harassment. It says a lot about the peculiarities of major gift fundraising in this fact that you're working very closely and intimately with a person. There are obvious reasons, I suppose, as to why a fundraiser might tolerate the unwanted advances of a donor but is there any recourse, is there any way or anyone that somebody can turn to in a situation like that? Well, this is what I found the most fascinating, actually, about the research. So there were a few things at play here. Unlike a relationship with a co-worker, a fundraiser feels obliged to conform in a way that would not endanger the gift to their organisation or the relationship with the donor and there are many reasons for this. I mean, fundraisers are highly specialised relationship managers. As I said, these relationships could have been cultivated over a long time. And the other thing that's interesting is that people become fundraisers for very particular reasons, and often it's very much because they want to make a difference, they want to give back. I mean, fundraising is a highly, highly professional and difficult role. It's not anywhere near as well paid as what people with the skills of a major gift fundraiser could be going and doing in other industries. So people choose to do this work mostly because they feel passionate about the cause. So one of the reasons that fundraisers end up tolerating sexual harassment is because they don't want to do anything to endanger the gift. I found that in many cases, especially when the harassment was really unsavoury, or it occurred over an extended period of time, then they often would go and report it to a manager. So it's not like they kept it completely to themselves. And in nearly every situation, to be fair, the organisation was willing and quickly to remove the fundraiser from harm. However, in a non-confrontational way, so they removed the fundraiser from harm and stopped the person from seeing that donor or made sure that they always went to the donor with a colleague or made sure that they were safe. But in almost all cases of interviews that I did with fundraisers and managers, they weren't 
willing to confront the donor. And so the problem here is that what happened was then the donor just sexually harassed the next person. And I realised that the fact that we don't talk about it to each other and have upfront training about this issue meant that it was just a problem that kept on going and that the older that we got as fundraisers and the more experienced, the better able to protect ourselves we were, but we weren't doing anything to protect those coming behind us. So I asked the question in my interviews, what could we do to stop this problem? And I fully expected people to say, we should have a zero tolerance policy. We should return gifts when someone's been found to be a sexual harasser. We should, you know, I was expecting them to come up with things that would actively halt the incidences or the transgressions. Nobody said anything like that. To my great surprise, that's what I found the most surprising. What they wanted instead, what all of the fundraisers wanted, was a safe place to be able to talk about it, to vent, to discuss it amongst colleagues. They did want to be able to go to their manager, but they didn't necessarily want to confront the donor either. So that showed me a few things. That showed me that this is a deeply, deeply entrenched problem in this industry because major gift fundraising is very competitive. So if that donor doesn't give the big gift to your organisation, they may well just give it to another organisation. And people had this real desire to protect in the end the beneficiaries, which, and by that I mean the benefits of the gift, really complicated and really for me quite fascinating because it showed that in order to make a change in this area, probably what we need to do first is work with organisations to make sure that they better prepare their fundraisers for dealing with this problem. So one of my interviewees said something that just really stuck with me. She said, if I bent down and picked up a box the wrong way and tweaked my back, I would know exactly where to go and how to report it and what to do about it. But no one has ever in 20 years of fundraising talked to me about what I should do if I'm sexually harassed by a donor. And so the policies aren't there in place. It's not part of the induction training. It's not something where we get together as fundraisers and discuss the issues and what we can do about it. And there are a couple of reasons for this. So the first one I've already mentioned, and that is that we bestow what I called legitimated, which I don't, I might have even coined that word, I'm not sure, but legitimate power in the research it refers to when people sit within an organizational hierarchy so your supervisor has legitimate power over you but we give them legitimated power which enables the donors to use things like rewards and coercive power in their interactions with fundraisers and fundraisers in the study were well aware of this power imbalance so in instances of inappropriate behavior they needed to carefully balance their personal safety and dignity with what they felt was their duty to fundraise so there was this issue of power the second thing was that because charitable organizations lack clear policies regarding donor perpetrated sexual harassment and there's a lack of open dialogue around this issue then from both the fundraisers and the managers perspectives and managers were quite upfront about this Charitable organisations weren't tackling the issue proactively. So when fundraisers reported incidences, their organisations were willing to take steps to reduce harm but not to confront the donor. So I found that in this way, organisations were silencing 
their fundraisers to a certain extent by not providing an open platform to discuss this. But in addition, it's like the donors are silencing the organisations as well, because in a few instances where managers or fundraisers talk to me about a time when a donor had been confronted, often the donors had a very severe reaction to the confrontation. And so organisations were scared to confront the donor because, like I said, they don't want to upset the person, they don't want to lose the gift. So there was a silencing issue. And then the third thing was that, as I also mentioned, that because fundraisers develop quite an intimate relationship with the donor, then fundraisers perform what I call pandering work with donors. So they tolerated really reprehensible behaviour. And the more you do that, the more a sexual harasser is emboldened. So there's been a lot of research done about how sexual harassment occurs. And a lot of it is to do with the enabling factors at the time. It's quite it's a situational occurrence often that happens. Somebody doesn't necessarily actively set out to sexually harass or even sexually assault someone. They're not like a lifelong perpetrator, but there are these acts of perpetration that occur when the situation enables it. So, for instance, if you're meeting with a donor on your own in their home, there are lots of factors there that sway the balance and you're kind of pandering to this behaviour. And the more you tolerate it, the worse it gets in many instances. That's certainly what was the case for many of the fundraisers that I interviewed. In instances where these factors led to inappropriate behaviour or sexual harassment from the donor, fundraisers most commonly endured the behaviour rather than even report it to their organisation. And these choices were often tied to their emotional attachment to the fundraising cause, as well as to their desire to perform well in the role, because major gift fundraising is very metric driven. And as I said, can be very competitive. My question, I suppose, is with this brick wall of power and you've got charities who are doing something but not enough, they're kind of just trying to minimise and mitigate what's going on and, and in attempting to protect people. Do you see a place for solid, proactive duty of care that charities and other organisations who need money are able to provide their staff? Actually, at the time that I was doing my research, the Me Too movement had only just begun. It was very new. And in fact, when I started thinking about this, it was actually even a couple of months before Me Too. So fast forward a couple of years, I mean, we're talking now four years or so, things are already quite different in this space. I think that this is something that is of course, it's much more widely spoken about, but also women are just becoming more comfortable in discussing their experiences. And not only that, I think there are more consequences now than there were. And actually, interestingly, one of the my interviewees, a male manager who had managed fundraisers and organisations for a long time, even he said in the interview that he feels that the Me Too movement has given him a better platform to be able to talk to donors. So where before it was a really awkward conversation and often ended in a fallout, sometimes an irreparable fallout, he now felt that he had a platform from which he could talk to donors about this being inappropriate and something that he was unwilling to tolerate. So I, th I thought that was interesting. But I think that other thing is that 
This kind of research provides new insights into the role of gendered power in sexual harassment and the organisational culture that enables sexual harassment to occur and remain unchecked. And that happens in the fundraising industry, but it happens across lots of other industries as well. Think of any industry in which someone's dealing with an external agent, for instance, medical or the legal industry or scientific research, financial sectors. There are many instances where an external agent has this kind of legitimated power and you have this long-term relationship. But I think that there is an increasing pressure on all industries to take more of a stand against this issue. And a problem of this scale requires pattern-breaking culture change. And speaking specifically about the fundraising community, I think there's lots of work that must be done to raise awareness of the issue. I mean, we just need to talk about it more often. And as I've said to you in our last podcast, I actually have been approached by some fundraising regulators from different countries around the world, some fundraising organisations and some collaborative partnerships of charitable organisations, be it charitable organisations or universities in the higher education sector, for instance, who are really taking a close look at this issue now as part of their equality and diversity work, but recognising that sexual harassment in particular is a problem, a really specific problem to the fundraising industry, and we have to actively confront it. So I think that there are lots of things we can do in terms of developing guidelines and implementing practices that protect fundraisers from harm. And I am sometimes loath to place the onus on the fundraiser because, you know, it is not, I am not saying that it's the situation that if you put yourself in harm's way, then sexual harassment can occur. You know, that old issue of women shouldn't dress a certain way if they don't want to be harassed. That's not what I'm saying. But there are many things that we could do to make sure that fundraisers actively protect themselves and place themselves in a situation that that reduces some of these situational factors that I mentioned before. There are also other solutions, such as recruiting more male fundraisers. Why are so many fundraisers women? You know, males are good fundraisers as well. And, in fact, they approach it often in a bit of a different way, you know, more of a this is a negotiation, whereas women approach it as a relationship. And, I mean, that's a generalisation, but that's one thing that came out, particularly in my study and other uh, research has been done around that as well. We could actively work with more female donors. So increase the diversity and the intersectionality of donors because in the past the typical donor was a white, older, rich man and provide safeguarding, training and implementing a code of practice for donors. So I think we can start to become a little bit more proactive. Certainly there are certain organisations, very well-known charities or higher education institutions that have a global reach and are powerful and that get a lot of donations in that could start to be a bit this kind of work. If you're a little charity and you are struggling to keep the lights on, then this type of work must feel impossible and it would be very difficult to confront your donor, especially if you only have one or two donors that give it the $100,000 level. However, if you are a very well-known, globally recognised institution, and there are many charities out there who are like this, or a research institution or a university, for instance, then you could possibly start to become a market leader in changing some of your organisational practices around this area. And so organisations like to talk about zero tolerance policies, 
I don't actually think zero tolerance policies are a good idea because there's nowhere to go from zero. So if you've got a zero tolerance policy in place, I think what it does is actually inhibits people from reporting things because, like I said, from zero, there is nowhere to go. But there are many things that we could be doing in terms of in our induction training with fundraisers, talking about how to make sure that you're following really safe practices. So letting your colleagues know where you're going. Don't meet the donor on your own. Meet on neutral ground. Don't go to their house or to their office, but meet someone or have them come to you. If they want to support your organisation and find out what they're doing, bring them onto your turf and so the power balance is redressed a bit up front. I do know that directly challenging donors' bad behaviour will inevitably risk short-term losses for some organisations, but I think that there is more that must be done in this area because this sort of behaviour should not be par for the course for fundraisers. We need to change the discourse, and I think one of the problems is that many fundraisers in my study said to me, it's just part of the job. It's just something you need to put up with. But it's not. This is our work. We should not have to put up with sexual harassment in our daily work. Is there, do you think, a way to say, look, yes, of course, we're going to come out and ask you for your your money. Our charity needs it. But hey, no, we're not tolerating this behaviour and make it clear. Or is the potential loss just too great? That's a really interesting question. And it's an interesting question for me too. And in fact, I am now in the first year of a PhD in sociology at the University of Cambridge. And I'm specifically looking at how power evolves in the relationship between donors and fundraisers and donors and organisations. And I am interested in exploring that question for exactly as you've just said, because, and I don't know the answer to this yet, that's why I've embarked on a PhD in the area, but... I think that there are things that we could do that could redress the power imbalance up front in a way which would just naturally reduce some of the incidences of this behaviour. But not only that, I actually suspect, and I mean I've got a whole PhD in front of me to explore this, but at the moment... In the current fundraising landscape, there was a great push a few years ago to move away from what we call donor-centric fundraising, where you ask the donor what they want, anything they want, and then you try and deliver it to them through the organisation. And then there was a a move away from that to a a more program-led fundraising approach, where as a fundraiser, you would be in charge of a particular program and proactively go out and try and find people to support that. The problem is that people are more likely, individuals in particular, and even corporates actually, are more likely to give to what they feel passionate about and what they feel interested in. So I feel, and I mean, this is not based on, this is anecdotal and just my own personal feeling in the industry, but that we're somehow moving again back to a more donor-centric approach where we really try and provide them with a lot of control and, and they can support what it is that they want to support The problem with that is it often doesn't deliver the type of impact that either the organisation wants or that the donor wants. It can be frustrating, I think, for the donor. So I would like to explore how the relationship evolves and what we could be doing to turn it into more of a genuine collaborative partnership where we are not begging for money 
and I use that term tongue-in-cheek, but just to give you an example. So we're not begging for money and they are not bestowing us with a gift out of the kindness of their heart. It is a much more strategic opportunity for an organisation and somebody with resources to get together and think about how to actually make a difference to a problem and make a change in an area that needs change, whatever that may be, whether it's health, whether it's poverty, whether it's, you know, the environment, whatever it is. So at the moment, donors exert a really powerful influence over fundraisers and organisations, and they're in the position to abuse this power and to behave in ways that are unwanted and inappropriate. But I would like to explore what can an organisation do to turn this relationship into something that is actually more equitable. And I also think that if we were to find a way to make transactions between donors and philanthropic causes more effective, then change would happen faster and the change itself would be more impactful. So like I said, I'm embarking on a PhD in this area because I think it's a fascinating topic and I don't know the answer to the question because I was really specifically looking in my own research and my previous research about why fundraisers tolerate it and, and what leads to them tolerating something so unpleasant. Now, because I am first and foremost a change agent and a fundraiser myself, as opposed to doing this just for reasons of academic interest, what I really want to have a look at is what could be done differently and what would that mean? So if we did change the situation, would that result in less gifts? Possibly. But what would that mean? Would it result in a fewer pool, but of more engaged donors who are willing to work with us more collaboratively? The optimistic side of me would like to think so, but who knows, it will be an interesting study. That was Jessica Rose, Masters in Social Innovation alumna and Head of Philanthropy and Development for the Spanish National Cancer Institute in Madrid. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube.